Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Aren't you so thankful for our team and the worship that we get to participate in? Yeah. We're still in our series here this morning, The Vital Signs of Christmas, and I pray that uh, your time in worship was one that prepared your heart. Um, Sometimes we get to this time of year, and I know it's uh, trying for pastors who've been in the ministry more than one or two years, because they seem like they're still going over the one or two passages that have to do with Christmas over and over and over again. How do we... uh, find something new without creating new theology, and that's uh, the dangerous part. But I think we have uh, an opportunity to devotionally take a look at just one verse for the next three weeks. Are you ready to do that? Just one verse in Luke chapter 2. Turn there with me, if you would. Uh, We're going to just unpack, and we've been saying over and over again, whenever you see in Scripture... uh, the, the indentation happened. You have songs, but you also have heavy-duty theology. You have in those moments when God says, I'm going to poetically say these words. He's phrasing it in a way that he wants you to grab onto this and ponder it, okay? Charlie Craig, a uh, pastor, a short while ago was, was just reminiscing about uh, how fun it was to go shopping with his mom for Christmas. Uh, when he was young, he would go shopping with his mom, and he said she would be filled up with all of this delight. And he had an opportunity as an elderly uh, woman was now in his home. His, his dad had passed away, and uh, he's walking with his mom once again. They went down through a series of shops, and he was delighted to see one shop that in each of the window uh, had a different display. It said, uh, new kitchens. It says, the smell of Christmas is here. And new entryway designs, the look of Christmas is here. And it had all these different things, but right at the entryway to the, uh, the doorway into the building, it said, but the heart of Christmas is here, and it was a nativity scene. And so all of these different things, smell of Christmas, feel of Christmas, all these things that you could desire, but he said the heart of Christmas right here, come on in. And they said they did. They went right straight in. They went into this place with a nativity scene. He then referenced uh, a survey that was done a short while ago on High Street in London of gift shops. They stopped their survey at 5,500 cards. They they investigated, a newspaper did, 5,500 Christmas cards, and they found that 67 of them referenced the nativity. 67 out of 5,500. Only 67 talk about Christ's birth in a particular way. We're going to look at that this morning, but doesn't that reflect what's happened in the world? We have widely a celebration of Christmas. We have in very few places a focus on Jesus. A little while ago, there was an interesting study. Uh, Christine Keir, uh, with a group of psychologists, had actually done a study of the eyeball. And I talked about eyes a little bit last week. Uh, this is just a continuing study that they had done. And what they were looking for in particular were the ability of the eyes, like a black mirror, to reflect what else was in the room. Uh, and these are psychologists, but they were also forensic psychologists. They were working alongside police departments saying, is there some use to be able to capture images 
off of an eyeball that is looking into an audience. In other words, can you take selfies at a place and actually catch bad guys because the bad guys reflected in your eyeball? So they took images off of eyeballs, some of them only 26 megapixels wide, and they, they had people that were in the room, and then they held those faces up to somebody else. So they took snapshots of everybody in the room that would have been reflected in the eyeball of another individual. They take a 26-pixel-wide image from the eyeball that's reflected in the eyeball, and they set it down there so it's this fuzzy image. 71% of the time, they could identify all the people in the room from the reflection in the eyeball. 84% if you were familiar with the group. Is that crazy? With a 26-pixel-wide image, they were able to do this. Why were they doing this study? Because they actually believe, especially in cases where you have some of these wicked uh, men out there, when they're taking pictures of what it is that they're doing, forcing their victims to look at them, they think that they'll be able to catch more perpetrators. That's one of their goals. But the reflection that one pastor made was, what we focus on is reflected in our life. And if your eyes can reveal a perpetrator in this season, they can also reveal a deliverer. What are you focused on? If people were to look into your eyes right now in this season, what would be reflected in what they see? What have you been focusing on? What have your eyes been drawn to? What is it that has captivated you? And is there a glory reflected off of your eyes that other people can see? It's just a small little glimpse, just a tiny little picture, but can they see Jesus there? That's the question for this morning. At the very first Christmas, it was impossible to miss the glory. It was impossible to miss it. But ever since then, we have been gazing oftentimes at the wrong thing. And instead of other people being able to see the glory of Christ revealed in what us Christians are focused on, they see us creating a season that is everything but focused on Christ. How do we get back to that? We're going to take a look at a glory-filled Christmas, the very first one in Luke chapter 2. Let's stand, and we're going to save the opening verses for the very end of this season, just so you'll feel like you read something new, okay? This is the passage almost everybody reads uh, before they open packages. You'll be reading this multiple times this season, but I think there's a treasure here for us if we'll pay attention. It says this, After the birth of Christ, verse 8, and in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch at night over their flock. And the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Mark that. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today... In the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with angels praising God, saying, here's our verse for three weeks, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people whom he favors. 
When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Do you believe that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. I want us to uh, pay attention in particular for three weeks to just this one verse. We'll look at it from different angles, but verse 14. This is what the angelic hosts were announcing on that first Christmas morning. They were announcing glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people whom he favors. Glory to God in the highest heaven. That's going to be our phrase for the morning. I just want you to notice a couple of things about this and why it is that angels would begin shouting on this particular day different from any other. Glory to God in the highest. What does that phrase mean? I want you just to consider two points. Two points. First of all, God's glory is uniquely displayed at Christmas. Do you agree? God's glory is uniquely displayed at Christmas. Uh, There is a word on this page, uh, glory, that is super important. Uh, It fills up the Old Testament and fills up the New. We hear it over and over again. It's uh, quite often used uh, like the word awesome is used. And in the same way, when you hear somebody say awesome, uh, it used to be a, a great big word. It used to be a word that drew out like an exclamation for you. When somebody said that was awesome, uh, it would fill the room. It was really exciting. But now when you hear somebody say awesome, uh, you kind of say it in your head like it's, uh, it's got like a surfer tone to it, right? Dude, that was Awesome. But it really doesn't mean anything other than they had like a good burrito or, you know, a great day surfing. Glory in the Old Testament comes from a word, uh, kavod, um, which means weighty. But it's only used literally two times in the Old Testament. We'll look at that in, in a moment. It was used metaphorically. It was a picture of heaviness or seriousness or mightiness or brightness. It had all of these other secondary meanings, but it comes from this idea of being so heavy, of being so significant that it would draw attention. In the New Testament, we have a word doxa. Uh, sometimes we used to sing the doxology, we'd just talk about the glory of God, but doxa literally is a high opinion, honor, or brightness. So doxa in the New Testament, a, a Greek word, actually picks up on that metaphorical usage that we had in the Old Testament. Now, as you develop this picture of glory, there's two different kinds of glory that are on display, and one in the Old Testament is a glory that man would receive. It, by the way, is this still the same today? A man in the Old Testament would receive glory from four or five things. One, from the position that he held. If a man was a king, he was considered heavy. He was considered glorious, all right? He would have glory. Uh, There was a a majesty with a king as he would walk into the room, and they would say that his, his glory, some of them would even require certain kings that you wouldn't look at them. Uh, mostly because you would see that they were not glorious, okay? Uh, but it is because of glory. Um, there, there are the, not just the positions that they have held, but the mighty things that they have done. Evil Knievel was famous for saying, bones heal, chicks dig scars, pain is temporary, but glory is forever. That was his phrase, right? 
as he wrecked his body for glory. I don't know of a great event where he actually successfully pulled off the stunt he was trying to do, but we all know his name, at least my generation. He was a man in the Old Testament, was given glory for the position he held, but also the wealth that he displayed, and thirdly, the family that he protected. If he had a great amount of wealth, it would be, um, in some circles, considered ostentatious. You would just throw your, your glory out there. But it was important for people of wealth to display that wealth, not just on their person, but by giving away things to other individuals. The wealth that was on display in his household and in his people, uh, the generosity that he had, the family that he protected... Uh, this we, we see even as uh, Jacob is getting ready to see Esau as he is leaving. Uh, some of your translations in Genesis will say that as um, Jacob was going out in front, he caused all of his glory to go in front of him. I don't know if you remember uh, the storyline, but Jacob had been separated from Esau, his brother, because he had offended him so deeply. And he was getting ready to go and meet him, and he caused all of his camels and his sheep and his goats and, and his uh, servants out in front of him. And then his family, his wives and children were out in front of him, and it says his glory went in front of him. It was all of his stuff, but also all of his family. He had switched his glory from focused on himself to glorying in his family. And all of his glory went in front of him. That was the way that the word is used. And finally, the gifts that he gives. I've mentioned this. Uh, but when giving gifts, a man, even though he is giving away wealth, receives glory in return. And Proverbs talks about that. These are different ways that glory is used when, when it's concerned, concerning you and I. The implication in the Old Testament is not that we're trying to gain false glory, but actually there is a path to righteous glory. A righteous life will attract right praise. A righteous life will attract glory. But there's another way that it's used, and in fact, the two times that glory is used in the Old Testament, literally, it's actually used in the negative sense. Uh, instead of um, translating that Eli was glorious, most of your translations, when you take a look at the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel, We'll talk about Eli, the prophet, who was uh, the final of the judges before a transition happened. Samuel, the one that he would raise uh, in that area, was actually the one that would bring in the Davidic kingdom. Uh, but there was a, a priest who sat over there, a prophet that sat over Israel. His name was Eli. But because he did not love the glory of God, he loved himself. He was listed as heavy. In fact, it says that Eli was very it, uh, the word there is kavod, very glorious. <laughs> he was extremely heavy. And the description of him is not of a human glory, but it actually is of somebody who is driven by comfort rather than by God. In fact, this is the discussion he has with Samuel where God has removed the glory from Eli because he had gloried in himself and his sons, and he had put it on this little boy who said that now he would change what's happening in the kingdom. Second time that it's used literally is Absalom. It says literally his hair was his glory or his hair was heavy. And if you remember the story of Absalom, one of David's sons, he would ride around with his hair all fluffed up and mag magnificent. 
Everyone would see him coming, and his glory was all in his head, but it became so weighty. He had to have it cut every so often just so he could keep his head up. But eventually, it gets stuck in the brambles of a tree. It became the death of him. His hair was heavy. Why? Because his personal appearance was more important than the person of God. We've not experienced that in the United States at all, have we? Instagram knows nothing about Absalom in the current day. Glory can be a negative. Misplaced glory in Scripture will weigh you down. Where is the glory supposed to travel? If you do anything glorious, it's because you're living a righteous life, which means God gets the glory. But as soon as you begin to gather glory for yourself, it becomes heavy. It becomes weighty. Imagine for a moment that you're a king and you have this magnificent crown. This is actually a crown that was given to... It's the Russian imperial crown. It was for Russian monarchs. And just on this one alone, there's nine pounds of uh, imperial diamonds. Nine pounds. Uh, They have pictures of certain crowns that were so heavy, 25 pounds and greater, with the gold and the jewels and everything that's encrusted on them uh, in order to show and display wealth and to show significance. It would actually hurt the neck of the person that was wearing them. Uh, it would cause them, to, they would have to put a fake crown on them in order for them to stand in all of their pomp and circumstance. The implication is great all the way through the scriptures. The greater the kingdom, the heavier the crown. The greater the glory that you seek, the more weighty it is to live the life that's underneath that crown. The only one who can handle the weightiness of glory is God. He's the only one. I want you to note a couple of things as we come to this passage, 2.14, where it says glory to God in the highest. First of all, God follows all of the rules. He follows all of the rules where man gets glory. He gets glory for his high position. He gets glory for the way that he displays uh, his wealth or his prominence or his significance. He's glorified through all the heavens. He's glorified in everything that he does on the earth. He gets glory from the family that he protects We are called his children, and God's glorious because of the way that he takes care of us. Amen? And the gifts that he gives. But wherever God displays his glory, he breaks our our categories. I want you to see this. Right here, if I were to tell you that I had a bag of gold, first of all, you would know it was not true, right? This is Sunday morning. But if I was to show you this bag of gold coins right now and say that every single one of these uh, was a legitimate gold coin, the parents in the room would be excited, right? If I was to say, hey, if you want one of these gold coins, just come up at the end of the service and you could have one. But if I told you now that instead of gold, these are not gold coins, these are actually chocolate coins. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, there's a different category of individual in the room who loves this bag, right? The kids in the room all of a sudden see that it is glorious. Now they're interested. They don't care about gold coins. They do care about chocolate coins. And by the way, if you happen to be so inclined at the end of the service, I'll give you one of these coins. You just come up and grab them. No no problem. All right, yes, Lisa, I'll save one specifically just for you, okay? These gold coins, I want you to notice there's a transition in your thinking when you look at it just a slightly different way. What happens 
at Christmas is the angels rejoice because something that God did on this particular moment increased his brightness. It changed the category. It causes us to see that word glory and the expectation of it in a completely different way. Just like changing from gold to chocolate causes some to be excited in the same way, this breaks the categories and causes the angels actually to say, this is the highest glory that we have ever seen. Now, sometimes we just think that they're just shouting it out because they're supposed to, that angels are just dancing around and excited because this is what, the way that they are wired. But there is something about this moment where Christ is presented on earth that caused the angels to say, this is a brand new category of glory. Something God does at Christmas is glorious. I want you to notice the second point for this morning, that God was glorified by a perfect gift. Gifts and glory go together. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 4.2, when it's talking about the coming of the righteous one, the branch, uh, it actually says that in all of our misery, in all of our brokenness, everything that we are experiencing is a result of our decisions, our way of running the world. By the way, it's still the same today. Any destruction or ruin or falsehood, um, all of the brokenness that we see around us has the fingerprints of man's thinking all over it. God is different. He comes and he resets the world in that passage, Isaiah 4.2. In John 3.16, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Gifts and glory go together. I want you to just imagine that uh, you're a kid right now at Christmas. As we are chasing the perfect gift, right, we want our kids to be excited. We know about gift giving. We know um, that at this time of year in particular, gifts are going to be given to different individuals. I just want you to, to listen to some statistics, though, that for me are heartbreaking. Once again, a picture that we might be missing the point. In... Uh, a study of last year's holiday retail sales, they discovered that uh, over the last couple of years, we have finally, in a three-week period, broken the trillion-dollar mark in buying gifts for Christmas. This year, where most Americans said they wanted to spend about $600 per family, we are on trend to spend $1,600 per family to give gifts. Is that shocking? Uh, 60% of U.S. consumers prefer to buy their holiday gifts online. Um, the average American spends about $120 on their spouse. The rest of that $1,600 is spent on family gifts and expectations. Right now, this season, 22% of Americans believe their Christmas spending will leave them in debt that will require them over a year to take care of. About 60% of Americans buy their gifts the week before Christmas. <laughs> oh, we laugh about that, but 60% of you are in that category, all right? Just look around, just point to them, and you're about right. High-income households are more likely to shop online. Uh, despite the pandemic, there was an increase of 8.3% in uh, gifts. What they found was about one-third of us plan our spending. The rest of us are trying to, through our spending, create an experience. We believe that buying just the perfect gift will actually 
change the mood in the room. We're trying to buy our way out of doldrums. By the way, they did a survey just in England. This is a side note on holiday spending, on the amount of money that is being spent just on alcohol. 32 million adults that would be legally adults according to our U.S. standard. Uh, Six billion units of alcohol will be drank within an eight-day window. All right? Now, if that hits a little too close to home, just kind of let it soak for a moment, so to speak. (laughs) Why do we do that? We're trying to gain holiday cheer. Where it says the Spirit of God is the one that comes in and actually creates the mood and the ability to speak and the peace that we have. We're trying to manufacture it through gifts and artificial means. And instead of being happier, we're more destroyed. What are some notes on the perfect gift? By the way, 41% of the gifts that you buy for children will be broken by March. Actual statistic. You're still paying for them. They're already broken. What are some notes on the perfect gift? I want you to notice this. The perfect gift in this passage is Jesus. And the perfect gift throughout Scripture requires something of the giver. Um, Charlie Brown was famous for saying uh, one time, he had smashed his piggy bank. He said, I have $9.11 to spend on Christmas. And Lucy looks at him and says, well, you can't buy gifts for everybody for $9.11. He says, sure I can. She says, well, there are going to be some cheap gifts. And he says, it can't be cheap if it's everything you've got. That's an important gift. The perfect gift requires something of the giver. This is a moment where all of the angelic beings are looking at what God gave and what it was that he did on behalf of mankind, and they're rejoicing because of the cost. What did it cost Jesus to leave the throne room of heaven and appear on earth as he did? Just a side note, too. Um, At the first Christmas, there was no debt. Jesus came to pay our debt. Do you know that? Just not trying to poke you, but let that settle in. No debt. He didn't arrive at the end of the season broken. He paid our debt so there was no burden. Second thing I want you to note, the perfect gift shows a knowledge of the recipient's wants and needs. What is it that we actually desire? We actually, every single human being desires peace. You're craving it. One of the things that you are hungry for this season and that you are hoping for is that God would settle your heart and bring peace to your family and and cause uh, an Old Testament picture, shalom, shalom, a peace in your finances, a peace in your business, a peace in your nation, a peace in your neighborhood, a peace in your home, a peace in your marriage, and a peace in your soul. Perfect peace. There's no area where you're unsettled. God knows that we need that peace. The only one who can provide it is the Lord God himself. He knows our wants. He knows our needs. He showed up to meet them. A third thing about the perfect gift, the perfect gift has value beyond the moment. It is possible for you to go to the dollar store with your $9.11 and come out with maybe even 10 gifts. You can actually do that. You can give 10 gifts to an individual and overwhelm them with the amount, but will it have something measurable beyond the moment? A perfect gift, a thoughtful gift, has meaning all the year long. A gift that you give this season with mindfulness, with thoughtfulness, will actually speak to that individual and speak about 
the fact that you know them. There's something meaningful that was exchanged between you, and it carries on through the season. The perfect gift results in glory. It says here, glory to God in the highest heaven. It results in glory, but notice it does not demand it. If you give the perfect gift, you will not be asking questions like, why don't you like those socks, okay? How come you don't love the tie I gave you? You won't be asking, do you like it? Do you want to? The perfect gift results in, how did you know? This is what God does on this moment. The angelic beings are actually watching as God gives a gift to mankind, and the result was a shout of glory that they could not contain. All of a sudden, all the angelic hosts start shouting out their praises. We're not even told whether or not this was a planned raucous event, right? One angel is making an announcement, but all of the angels just start shouting glory and hallelujah. Have you ever been in a place where you just could not contain it, and you're overwhelmed, and you begin to shout out, this is what just happened, or you praise God out loud, and you catch yourself? This is what the angels are doing. It resulted in glory. They were shouting to God. He broke the categories with Jesus, and glory came to his name. Final note on the perfect gift. The perfect gift is only recognized by a thankful heart. Put in there, thoughtful. A perfect gift is only recognized by a thankful heart. Why did they appear to shepherds? Because these were the folks that were actually supposed to watch over the gifts that other people would give to the Lord. So all of Israel would come to this group of shepherds and get their little lamb that they would take as a sacrifice to God. But do you know that the shepherds were considered unclean? They would have to enter through a specific gate. They weren't even allowed to be in the assembly the the way the rest of all the other people were. So they're guarding the gifts of Israel, but they can't participate in the same way with Israel. And the angels come to them and say, you no longer are going to have to give this gift away. You're going to see the lamb of God himself. And these thankful hearts received him. Thankful, open hearts. Why is it that we struggle to see Christ in Christmas? It's not because he's not available. It's because we've allowed ourselves to get caught up in secondary things. A perfect gift is only recognized by a thankful heart. By the way, it's the same at Christmas in our home, isn't it? When we have thankful hearts, we don't have to profusely give a bunch of gifts to get them stirred up. Thankful hearts that are created in a thankful home will receive even the smallest gift with praise. A couple of thoughts. Christmas is better measured by the good that you do rather than the goods that you've gathered. Jesus Christ comes, it says, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and to people whom he favors or goodwill toward men, many of our translations say. This is a moment where God gives a gift, but it's actually a blessing that is going to transform the lives of the people who receive it. That's what it is. The good that he is about to do is the measurement of whether or not he should get glory. But I want you to think about the same thing. As a family, if you are struggling in this season to pick a perfect gift, would you consider that one of the things that might be missing in the home that creates thankfulness is service to other people? What if you measured your gift giving this season by how much it was attached to doing good for somebody else in a community in need? 
there's opportunities that abound. If you need some ideas, I can give you some. But I think that you probably, by the Spirit of God, already know somebody you could bless. Who needs to be served around you in a way that says, I want to give to the people around me the way that God gave to me? Service without expectation. Christmas is measured better by the good you do than the goods you gathered. And secondly, happiness flows from healthy hearts. Just like the perfect gift is only recognized by a thankful heart, we need to have a healthy heart ourselves. We need to be in the word, not waiting for God to do something significant before we respond, but getting our hearts ready to respond as we come into this season. Amen? We need to be mindful of that. 2 Corinthians 9 gives us a measurement It actually talks about generosity, and generosity in particular that is attached to gift-giving. Paul is trying to raise funds for some folks that are overwhelmed and that are broken, and he sees this amazing gift that came from the Macedonian church, and he's overwhelmed by it, but he says they only did that because their faith had inspired them. They had received so much from Jesus, even though they were impoverished, they gave away all of their goods, and he's telling another church about this. But at the very end of it, he talks about how that gift was only possible because of the gift of Jesus Christ. And then he just shouts out in one sentence to cap off his discussion about giving in a season much like this one. He says, praise be to God for his marvelous gift. Whatever we do in this season, I'm asking you to reclaim a part of Christmas I'm asking you to consider how it is that you give a gift. If this perfect gift at this moment was done in such a way that all of the glory goes to God, how will you join with the angelic choir and give gifts that cause people to praise God this season? What will you do to make it less about the stuff and more about the Savior? If you are successful in that, then in your home you will hear just like the shepherds did on this day, glory to God. In the highest. We want to make sure that the Savior is the one that we focus on. The right gift still causes rejoicing today. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us in this gift giving. And uh, Father, we ask you to shape our thinking and to prepare our hearts for this season. It is possible for us to get glory by giving a ton of gifts or an amazing Uh, cost, a price point for the gifts that we give. We can do all kinds of things that will last for a moment, but ultimately that glory fades. Father, instead, I pray that you would make us thoughtful people. Help us to reclaim the meaning of this season by simplifying and focusing on Christ. Let it be the actions that we do, Father, rather than a profuse number of gifts. Help us to be the kind of people that make a difference in the world around us, that when we give a gift, people know that it's coming right directly from a heart that cares. I pray, Father, that you'd make us folks that look like you, that give like you, that respond like you. As you broke the categories in giving us Christ, I pray that we would be overwhelmed at the opportunity to put him on display. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.